Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. I'm one of your hosts, Ray. And I'm your other host, Chris. And today we are finally bringing to you the OG Pet Cemetery episode. I'm stupid excited. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this, uh, uh, if you missed it, we had a little bit of a mix-up. So last episode, we released a oldie, oldie bonus episode. Uh, this is when we recorded Overlord back in November, and we released that last week because uh, it was largely my fault. My schedule was pretty pretty bad last week. But now we're back with the 1989 Pet Cemetery. Uh, movie uh, just in time for the brand new remake that's coming out this weekend so it's awesome again stupid excited so for starters pet cemetery is a cult classic in my opinion i feel like there's something in this movie for everybody and this is the only book that stephen king has written that scares him oh yeah it's really interesting because um uh i did not know this um and i watched a really cool documentary on shutter uh it's called unearth and untold the path to pet cemetery i'm not quite sure if it's available anywhere else outside of shutter i, I assume it would be maybe like on amazon prime or or like a youtube rental but apparently with the when he was submitting when he when he wrote Pet Cemetery, and pitched it to Doubleday, uh, at the time, um, even Stephen King and his wife thought it was a little bit too far, and his publishers were like, "Well, we can't do this story because there's child death in this book." And then when he moved, when we, like sometime later he was moving to another publisher, um, and. Uh, as part of like a financial deal, they wanted another book and decided to do Pet Cemetery um, uh, on a second round. And they went so hard on advertising and PR, uh, largely on the fact uh, that in the inside cover, they put log lines saying, read the book that scared Stephen King himself. And uh, because of that, uh, it was like a very much like a viral gorilla type of marketing campaign and uh because of that it the book sales were in high demand everywhere yeah i i actually learned a lot from just reading imdb trivia and watching this documentary and there were a lot of things that i had already known and there were a lot of things that i that i hadn't but there is something about pet cemetery that holds tried and true for horror fans and my whole thing the way Stephen King decided to write all of this was his daughter's cat actually got hit by a truck and died and was buried in a in a pet cemetery and actually the name of the cat has its own grave in the movie they like paid a little. Oh, it was like it was that. like sh- uh, schmuck, schmucky, smucky. Yeah, no, smucky, not schmucky. Schmuck means something different. In <laughs> um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, and also, 
the scene, obviously, again, I we're going to preface this spoiler alert. So just for eternally, um, when Gage gets hit by the truck, first of all, I learned in the documentary how they did all of that. So awesome. But that happened to his son. His son took off and started running towards the road and he got him just in time. And the whole books just sort of like flashed before him. So he ended up writing it. And like Chris said, it was just a little too intense because there is child death. Um, but that is also a huge part of the story. It's dealing with death and how you explain that to kids. And I think that this movie, not that I would show this movie to a child to explain death, but you see the way the two parents try to grapple with that. Yeah, it's it's and like trying to... You know, it's like it's balancing... Like, you know your child is going to eventually be exposed to this these type of topics. Um, and they're really heady topics. And you you want to prepare them or, or at least make them understand when, you know, the cat dies or if a loved one dies... But at the same time, like especially from the mother's point of view, you also want to try to preserve their innocence as much as possible. And you know, so Well, because her innocence was completely corrupted by having to take care of a sick sibling. Exactly. Um Z- uh and Zelda. It was her oh, sister. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Her sister Zelda. It, w- it would technically be Ellie's aunt, but yeah. And th- by the way, that uh Zelda was played by a man in this in this movie. You know, just a constant hallmark of this podcast. We just love practical effects. And another. Which was all over this film. So, again, if you are an aspiring filmmaker and you want to use special effects in your movie, I don't think that practical effects have an expiration date. So, if you have the capacity to utilize them, oh, God, do it. Do it. Because there's something. It's so visceral and so real when you get to see practical effects being used. And with uh, with Zelda in particular, uh, yes, Zelda was played by a man uh, named Andrew Hubastek, and the makeup, like and like just the the character design, where it was, uh, I think was, they're they're trying to portray uh, what's it called, uh, meningitis. So they had spinal meningitis. Yeah, so they had like the really wasted away look and the weird curvy spine that's protruding out and and how they they had like a, like an inch of foam uh encasing Andrew plus like prosthetics to make the the spine effect and how he was basically stuck in there for 24 hours. Uh, then it took like another 8 hours just to take off the makeup. It's like and all all the prosthetics. It's like wow, that's such great commitment and you know these we should i mean i know see it's so easy well quote unquote easier to use cgi but you know keep keep the that craft alive because that's it's so astounding also apart from the zelda scenes because i've seen so many compilation videos of some of the most terrifying scenes in horror movies and the Zelda scenes from Pet Cemetery always get brought up because it is truly terrifying, but again, for a different reason. And Zelda's scenes are iconic, but also 
So is Fred Gwynn and that main accent that he sports in this movie. That whole sometimes dead is better. Like that is the one thing I think I'm going to miss in terms of the new movie, which we'll get to because I do have some thoughts on that from the little that we've seen so far. Um, I have things that I'm speculating on. Uh, isn't, um, uh, but ja- just, ja- was it John Lithgow he's playing? John Lithgow. Yeah, he's playing John. Yeah, he doesn't have that heavy main accent. And I, I'm going to miss that a little bit for watching. Now, I've watched this movie like three times before this episode because I didn't realize how much I had sort of missed having it so fresh in my mind. Uh, so I've, yeah. So I've seen it quite a bit. <laughs> this is uh, my second time watching it. So uh, Ever? Ever. Yeah. It's, just <gasps> been a, it's been a minute. This was like my seventh Actually, no, probably more. But like, I had seen it a bunch, but I just watched it so many times coming up to this. It's it's been a long minute since I've watched this, so it was basically. So when was the first time you saw it? Uh, pretty young. I want to say like. Were you like Ellie's age? Uh, like maybe not that young. Maybe like <laughs> twelve, eleven or twelve. Yeah, that's young. Yeah, that's young. I just had a super fondness for Fred Gwynn because. He's largely known for for comedy, like the Munsters, or he's playing, or like my favorite role of his, he plays the judge in my cousin, my cousin Vinny, um, which is a fantastic film, and but just seeing Fred Gwynn like do something that's out of his element and master it so flawlessly, and he does it with such charisma and charm, it's just so fantastic, and I think he's he's definitely one of my favorite parts of this movie. And I feel like that's the same for yeah. uh, a lot of other people because he's like uh, like so many people um, on the the casting team and the production team. They they like Frank was a legend, and they were they were so happy to have him. I also one of one of my other favorite moments. I mean, Judd was definitely of a favorite moment of mine in this. Watching all the practical effects usage for Zelda, another solid point for me. But I think one of the, and I, I actually played this for a coworker because they couldn't understand why I was laughing. I was working late and I was laughing maniacally because I love the way this line is delivered by, uh, I think his name is, Mi- what is his name? Miko? Mikos? Yeah. I think his name is Miko. Um, Miko Hughes. The little boy that yeah, played. Gage Creed. Miko. Right. Okay. So Miko delivers this line as returned from the dead gauge that has me cackling with laughter while I'm in the office because of the delivery, not because it's actually funny. I, I think I sometimes laugh when I'm uncomfortable. And uh, <laughs> this was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, dead zombified toddler. This line is terrifying and I'm hysterically laughing. So someone came up to me and they said, well, what, what are you laughing at? What's so funny? And I played it for them. And it's when Gage has just killed Judd and his mom, and he calls the house and he says, "Oh, he calls the phone." That's right. He calls the house and he says, first I played with Judd, then I played with mommy. Now I want to play with you." And I'm like, "Oh!" And he starts cackling. Oh no! And it's just like it has me like cackling with like, like oh, so so good. And the fact that they. The fact that the director knew that 
Miko had the capability to do what he was going to do with this movie at such a young age. I find he, astounding. Uh, he was age three when he was when they were filming this, by the way, which is pretty astounding. Yeah, he was very, very tiny. Yeah, and. The studio wanted both kids to be played by twins. Only Ellie Creed was played by twins. Miko was not. Miko was played just by himself. And uh, the director, this was directed by Mary Lambert. She put her foot down. She's like, no, it's just going to be this kid. He he can do it. He's fine. And I think that that, A, takes a lot of brass. And B, that is a lot of faith to have in a three-year-old. For a movie, he because he carries a bit of weight, especially towards the end. Oh, he's, he's like he's the entire third act. A lot of the horror, yeah. yeah. He delivers the horror, and it's brilliant to watch. Uh, I know that in the documentary, he says that there's a little bit of a disconnect for him because he was so young. He it, he sort of remembers it, but not really, especially when it comes to the truck scene, because of the way they shot it. Uh, he says there there is a little bit of a disconnect watching all of that, but he knows it was him. It's just, it was so long ago. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be that kid on that stage. I'm like on that set, like, oh my God, you got to take a prosthetic and like take like a chunk out of Fred Gwynn's neck, which they were concerned was going to emotionally and psychologically that child. He turned out fine. He know he did turn out fine, but it, it said, and this was one of the things I learned from the documentary. They told him, like, you're just going to bite. It's all fake. There's nothing real about it. Everything's fine. And he was totally cool with it. He takes his bite, but then Fred Gwynn starts making his gurgling noises. And apparently when they called cut, Miko freaked out. Oh. Because he thought he actually did something. Oh, no. So you warned the kid about everything except for the part that was going to come after that. Fred Gwynn. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I don't don't know. But, yeah. I actually um, haven't read this book. I actually haven't read it either, but I'm really curious now. I do. I I did do some digging into the comparisons between the novel and the movie. But before we do all of that, there are some Easter eggs to other Stephen King. Like we know that this exists. Um, There's always a connection to something in another Stephen King book. In the novel, it's Fred Gwynn talking about the circumstance. But in the movie, when they're dragging Victor into the hospital to get checked out there is a poster in the background of rabies and Cujo is on the poster in the book Fred Gwynn talks about a rabid dog that went nuts a couple towns over like a town over or something like that so Cujo has now been brought into the pet cemetery universe oh that's fantastic I think that's awesome and also it was um like a requirement for this movie to be shot in Maine. Like no sets for it to be looked like Maine. This was shot in Maine, like 20 minutes from where Stephen King actually Yeah, the production team like fought tooth and nail to film it in Maine. There was concerns, or I guess like pushback from it being filmed in LA. And then they also considered doing it in Seattle. And I think there was also like some like tax incentive 
or some uh, for filming in Canada, but they ended up filming in Maine. I think one of the reasons why, because whenever you film in a town, like business thrives um, just because you, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of talent and roles to be f- to be filled. And two, like it's just, I think it's really fitting. The Pet Cemetery has such a close personal connection with with Stephen King's life. I mean, a lot of it's auto- autobiographical or bio- wow, can I talk? A lot of it's autobiographical, uh, lifted from real life experiences and with it coming full circle, like just doing something that's so formative and so inspirational, like literally in Stephen King's backyard. I think that's just a really nice sense of poetic justice. Oh yeah. And think about the boost it gives to the locals and the local economy for doing something like this. I mean, most, if not all of the extras were all main locals and Stephen King does a lot for his community. He's, like, really proud to be from Maine. So the fact that he was so insistent on this movie being filmed in Maine, I think is, I, like, not that he needs kudos for me because who the hell am I, but I give him a tremendous amount of kudos for that because I don't know if there are that many directors that would have fought that hard to film something in their hometown if they were so passionate about it. I feel like some directors probably would have caved and been like, all right, fine, we'll, we'll, do it on set so we'll make it look like well it. i think it just gives it a really it gives the film like extra authenticity it's just it's just important to support your hometown and like 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 you said before i think one of the prop masters she she was like oh yeah i will work for you for like a week for free and if if i'm not up to snuff then I'll be on my way, and then she stuck a, she stuck out with the rest of the project, and I think the other local person, she was the, what's it called, the greenskeeper, the green, the greens, the groundskeeper. Oh uh, no, it starts. It's like green something. She was, she, it was this lady who was in charge. Yeah, she was like she was like the landscape artist or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah she, it was her job to make sure the pet cemetery other parts of the set look exactly to a T or in terms of the pet cemetery in general to look, make it, make it, make sure it looks creepy all the time. It's like, that's such a cool job. And it's, it's, I would want that job. (laughs) I I seriously want that job too. And it's so great that Stephen King's supporting his local community. I don't know. I think, I think, I think Stephen King's just a hometown hero. And it's, 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 it's really inspiring. I agree. So we've talked a lot about the background of this movie, um, and we'll get back to some of that because some of this, uh, the next section of things that I wanted to talk about in terms of you know background and stuff relates more towards the book and then subsequently my thoughts on the remake that's coming out. So we'll just put a pin in that for a second and we'll just dive into our experiences with actually watching this. So... Chris said that this was his second time ever. It felt movie. super fresh. Like it was. It, it it's been long enough where I f- it really felt like I was watching the movie for the first time again. Uh, and I was just so. I love this. I love it when you when you experience a movie like that, especially horror, because there are things where you find like, nope, still can't watch that, or uh, that's not as scary as I remember it, or something like that. Amazing. Yeah, and. Just coming from that fresh perspective, like 
I don't know. It just, it just, it, it, watching the film was just so mesmerizing. Again, like with practical effects, like it, it left me with uh, a sense of wonder. Um, you know, for example, the Zelda scenes were great. Oh God, what's what's his name? Oh, uh, oh God, the dad? No, the uh, the ghost, the ghost that haunts Lewis. I can't. Oh, oh my God, um, I can't remember. Victor Pascal. Yes. His name is Brad. I cannot pronounce his last name. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, yeah, the kid that... His name is Victor Pascal. Yeah, Vic, yeah that's right. Uh, Victor's makeup job, just like the blown out head and just like the veins and the, the milky eyes. Like it just... It just... It would just captivate my attention so much. And even just like much smaller practical effects stuff. Um, like just how... I, I How they did the glowing eyes of the cat. Like I don't, I don't know much about film or practical effects, and so when I was watching the documentary, they had a segment where it was like, oh yeah, like this cat was like the most professional cat ever. Like it, we did. There were seven cats that played church. That's right. That's right. Um, and they each had like a special job. Like one, I guess, was going to cuddle with her. One had to climb the tree. One had to do this. Mm. But in the documentary, they talked about how they achieved the effect with. His eyes and the and light. it was so simple that they just like like flipped the light around and then it was like a minimal effect, but like given like the biology of a cat's eye, it just picked up super vibrant. And it's like that's so simple. I would have never thought to think of that, and I don't know, like just it's all together like those composite elements. It just made for like a, such a visually striking film and oh god and then and like i just love like philosophy and like existentialism and stuff and um when this movie came out in the 80s you you had a, sl- a lot of slasher movies like dominating the scene and then I, I, pet cemeteries was uh it's terror is dreads it's a different t- type of speed but still no less terrifying like um I feel like it's more a more realistic type of horror. It's like, oh, it's, it's a fear of death. It's a fear of loss. It's a fear of the destruction of the family and how it's also like a morality tale. It's like you're not supposed to tamper with forces beyond your understanding or, or tempt fate or cheat death. And then you, and then it just, you know, it's just like a series of bad consequences like steamrolling into this wonderful chaotic display at the end where everything ends in flames and it's just ah so good okay so it's funny you should say that i have a quote here from mary lambert who is the director of the movie and she says horror movies deal with taboos that society doesn't want discussed in a polite way and the topic of death is chief among them It's at the crux of the story here in an obvious horror way, but also in how Rachel Creed tries to avoid the topic around her children. That avoidance leads to Lewis Creed's promise about Gage, the cat's safety, and his unwise decision to bring the feline back from the dead. Which I think, which I think reflects what you were just talking about. It brings... I mean, yeah, horror movies in general do deal with taboos that no one really wants to talk about. But this movie in particular, death is a hard thing to talk about for a lot of people. And this movie forces you to do it. 
just like bringing the kid to the pet cemetery forced her to have a conversation with her dad about church's mortality. Why does why does God want my cat? He can make his own cat. He can have his own cat. And it forces him to have a conversation with his children about death because it stares you right in the face. Now, I don't believe in lying to children either, but I do think that there is a thing as starting them a little too early on that topic. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really hard line. Like, like if I lost a grandma at seven and you had to explain that to me, that's one thing. But I lost pets when I was that little. And I mean, I lost a, I lost two fish and it was my mistake. This was before I understood fish. And I said the fish went belly up and my parents were like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to take the fish to Surf City, which is what they called fish heaven. And they literally took the fish and flushed it down the toilet. No. I mean, but that was, that was an under, that was the way they made me understand it. Your fish is no longer here. It needs to go somewhere else. It was fish, quote unquote, fish heaven, surf city. They flushed a dead fish down the toilet. All two of them. Um, I, for me, like, it, I don't, I never really had like a major pet. Like uh, for the, well, I mean, to this day, I never owned a cat or dog. I mean, I own a lot of fish. And I guess, like, the closest attachment to a pet I had uh, was that I, I was fourth grade. Our our class had a litter of gerbils, um, and I got to take one home, and I named it Jerry after Tom and Jerry because I used to love oh, – I still love watching, like, Tom and Jerry cartoons. And uh, I remember Jerry being around for, like, at least a year or a year and a half, and then – being so distraught, like one day finding like Jerry just like stone cold, stiff and dead as uh, as like and like, I remember like that was like my first major major grip with like pet death and death in general. Um, and how did your parents explain that to you? Honestly, like you know, I don't know if my brain like blocked it out or I, I just I just remember crying a lot. Um, mm. and I don't, re I don't recall, like, I legitimately don't recall, like, my parents sitting me down and having, like, a big conversation about death. I just remember having, like, crying a lot and having, like, some instinctual understanding that, like, Jerry was gone. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it necessarily always needs to be a big conversation, but I do think there needs to be at least an acknowledgement of some kind, which you see in Rachel Creed, she refuses to do. When Ellie, and even I think that Ellie knew on some level, I shouldn't go to my mom with this. She went immediately to her dad and started questioning things and asking things of her father. While her mom was sitting in the kitchen, eavesdropping on the conversation and getting stuff out of the fridge. And it's two very different reactions. Now, I guess an argument could be made that the dad's a doctor and he sees death all the time. But like we said in the beginning, death affects everybody differently. Just because you're a doctor and you see it every day doesn't mean it's any less hard for you to deal with. It's one of the things that I love about horror and, and I love about this movie in particular. There are no rules with this. You, you do what you want with it. And separate from the novel, Mary Lambert helped set up a world for this. I don't I don't think I could say anything bad about it. I think it ages really well. I mean, remake or no remake, I think that this is a near I mean, I'm an almost perfect horror movie. 
I don't think there's anything I could change. I don't. I I think it's. I think the remake has a lot to live to. It has some really big shoes to fill. Oh, agreed. I like. I think. I think the remake. I have a feeling, or I have an idea, or a hunch as to where I think the remake is gonna go with it, which won't necessarily be bad. Think it will just be very different, uh, and different isn't always bad, but. This is a near-perfect horror movie. And I say near-perfect because I think calling something perfect, you, I, I, don't, I don't see that. Mm, mm, mm. It makes me feel like I've tainted it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> if I just go, oh, it's perfect. And then here comes somebody else that's like, well, here are 10 things wrong with this movie. Mm. If your top 10 reasons are it's not the book, then there's nothing wrong with the movie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, apart from... Cujo, there is a Carrie homage in this movie, and that's after Gage gets buried when his little hand sticks up out of the dirt. That's an homage to Carrie at the end of the movie when she bursts out of the soil. And then there's another one, I think. Ah, okay. There is another one, but it's more to do with the book, so I'm just going to hold off on that. I want to get your opinion on something. What's up? So Mary Lambert, according to her, she this is the way she sees this in the film. She sees Victor Pascal as the good angel and Judd as the bad angel. She says, as f- the friendly old man is, the way he's portrayed is he's the, he's the one that Lewis should be ignoring. Mm-hmm. So like cute, friendly old man, but he's the one you need to look out for. His wardrobe, especially the the large hooded jacket he's wearing when Church is found dead, is meant to suggest darkness. Mm-hmm. That, and I sort of got that in the movie, but it, I was so enthralled with it that I wasn't paying attention to imagery like that at first. And then I read that, and then I watched it again. Well, yeah, and I I, totally, I definitely agree with that. Like, um, yeah. the documentary was saying like another major theme of the movie was. The secrets that men hide. For example, like Judd's deep dark secret was that he like revived his dog um, or was involved with uh, the killing of a reanimated uh, World War Two or World War One or World War Two. I forget. Uh, we'll just call him a war. Yeah, vet. a war vet. Um, and then he was part of an angry mob that burnt down a building or built a, built down a home, and the monster and his father. And I could definitely, which was a beautiful reference to Frankenstein. Yes, oh uh, yeah, and Frankenstein's like a very formative work on of on Stephen King's writing in general, but especially with this movie or this the the book. I'm sorry, um, but yeah, I definitely agree. Like. Judd is actually the the tempting devil. We just didn't realize it, or it was like it was very subtle. It was like a very slow burn. But it, I mean, yes, you could you could point to Lewis uh, and his agency. Like, yeah, I mean, it, in the end, Lewis like was tempted, and he became so desperate and distraught and deranged that. You know, he further went down this path of heresy, but at the same time, like it was Judd's initial sin or his 
uh, I don't know if you, you could call it hubris or just uh, like his fatal mistake where he introduced the idea, the very seed of of this ancient, the true, this, this ancient burial ground, like the true pet cemetery. And at the same time, like appearances are deceiving. You know, on the other hand, you had Victor, who looks like this horrific uh, ghost with the, his head like blown out. But all the while he's, He's amused. He's guiding Lewis. He's begging him, like not, not to. Or he's giving cryptic warnings, and the significance are those warnings are found out too late by Lewis, and he's also giving a guiding hand to to Rachel, and just the fact that, like Lewis, maybe because of being a doctor, or you know, he's, he thinks he's legitimately going insane because. You know, a dead person's talking to him, and it's a it's beyond the scope of his willing perception. You know, he can't see for what Victor's trying. He, he can't see what Victor's trying to do. He's he's legit trying to help him out, like trying to save his soul. And then, um, I mean, in the end, Judd gets his just desserts because he br- he brings upon this evil and he's also really self-reflective that he's like i i believe i killed your son gage because i introduced this idea i let the evil out yeah he's like i told you about the pet cemetery i let this happen which sort of adds more to mary lambert's point i think he can act sorry about it all he wants but he's not sorry he did exactly what he wanted to do which was get this idea into Lewis's head because if Lewis truly understood the severity of what he did, he wouldn't have tried to bring his son back and he wouldn't have tried to bring his wife back. And I, and I think Judd should have known better. Like, he, he knew. But he did, and that's more to Mary Lambert's point. Like, he's he may be, like, a cute old man, but there's something very untrustworthy yeah, about sinister. him. There's something sinister, you know. Yes. I mean, again, very, it, very I mean, like, it, there's this constant line, like, uh, like the secrets of men and like what's the soil in the man's heart is, is like rougher and rockier. And that's no, that's definitely true of Judd because yeah, he, he has a dark past and. And it's even darker in the novel. He oh, like, now? has a wife that dies instead of it being Missy, the caretaker for the household, which opens up that whole conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of elements in the book that were in the initial script, in the initial screenplay that Stephen King wrote, and then he eventually took them out because they were just, it was just a little uh, too much for a movie, I think. Uh, there are nods to the initial plot of it, though throughout the film which i think was nice for the people that had read the film that could recognize that but yeah i i again i literally just have nothing bad to say about that (laughs) (laughs) i still think though no matter how many times i see this movie whether it's my first or my 10th or my 50th gage's death will always shock me Mm, yeah because it's because it's a kid Mm. because he's so young yeah. Will always shock me. Yeah, child death is, you know, it's, it, it just, it's, it always hits you like a truck. 
Literally. Especially, mm, <laughs> for Gage, quite literally. Especially because you see, like, the little, like, bloody shoe at the end, and then the whole funeral scene, and, oh, I just, it's just, it's a lot to unpack. I I remember the first few times I saw it, I always have to pause after Gage's death because I need a second to breathe. So. And, then you, and then you see Gage, like, like, like all pale with black veins and carrying a scalpel, like running around and it just mm-hmm. laughing like crazy. And then like, oh my, like, I don't know why, like it sent such chills, but the fact that, um, oh, like the one scene where like Lewis injects him in the neck and he starts like Gage in his final words, he starts cursing like at, at his dad. And then like, just like, drunkenly like walks over and slumps against the wall it's like i don't know why that was like so disturbing i just oh well okay so it's funny you should say that apparently in the novel gage like possessed gage it's possessed gage not just undead gage is extraordinarily vulgar and i mean like obscenities that a child should not be saying to an adult much less their parent. And the reason for this is, so I guess we'll we're, we'll sort of get into this now. Um, the reason for this is Stephen King, part of the plot for Pet Cemetery is the Wendigo myth that he explores, where this particular part of the mythos is a spirit that possesses a human so they can commit acts of cannibalism and murder, which explains why Gage eats his face and does what he does to his mom and all that other good stuff. They didn't go with that plot line, but they did do a nod to it. When they're up in the woods and you hear that that howling and Judd sort of looks at it and says, oh, never mind, it's just a loon. It's supposed to be the Wendigo, and it's like a nod to the novel. Like, we're acknowledging that this is a part of the universe, we're just not touching it. Which I think is also a really interesting way to go about this particular novel and this particular movie. So, am I upset that they omitted that? No, not at all. In fact, I think that they're going to get another chance to explore that. I really think that the Wendigo is going to play a part in the remake. Yeah, and, the, and then it also ties back to like Indian folklore. The documentary was mentioning about this, how the Wendigo was this super creepy creature that feasted on, on the flesh of men and how it was originally a a legend to create taboos on uh, create taboos against cannibalism especially in times of super hard winters or just a, a rough harvest just like not to result to that ca- that cannibalism like trying to preserve humanity or trying to not cross that line which is I did read something interesting about changes in terms of the movie and I don't think I've ever heard of a movie doing this when they initially sent this movie out, the studio had them change the ending. Not for the reason you might think. They had them change the ending because they thought it was too tame. They needed it to be bloodier for the ending. So they had to call her back in, the woman who plays Rachel Creed, and reshoot the ending Wait, so to what you actually see. Did 
So in the original ending, she didn't end up stabbing... No, the original ending, I believe, ends oh. with Rachel coming through the front door, but you don't see her. You just see Lewis looking up from playing his game of cards, and that's the way it ends. I know in the book, I think, if I remember correctly, um, she comes in, she puts a hand on his shoulder, and she says, darling, or something like that. Or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I think they, they, they did something, some mixture of the two of them. They did something like that, but it wasn't nearly to the extent of what you saw. Mm. Um, what you see in the film is she's missing an eye and there's stuff oozing out of and the And they socket. start making out. <laughs> and they're kissing. And then she raises a knife in her hand and you... the. It goes black, but you hear Lewis get stabbed. Yeah, he dead. He's definitely dead. I just, I've never heard of a studio saying, no, no, that ending's too tame. We need something else. You have to come back in and like make it more disgusting. We, we need, we need a schlocky cliffhanger ending. Well, Mary Lambert wrote a Pet Cemetery sequel that never got made that was supposed to center around Ellie uh coming back to Maine after all these years. So wait, that was in Pet So wait. What? No, Pet Cemetery 2 is something completely oh, different. Okay. Mhm. It has yeah. This was a sequel that Mary Lambert the director wanted to do herself. Has nothing to do with the novel. I would have loved to have seen that. Like cuz we don't yeah. really know what happened to Ellie except that, you know, she's now an orphan. Well, yeah, she was probably raised by grandma and grandpa in Chicago. I mean, you know, so I think it would have been interesting. There was one thing that she said that I sort of I went like, uh, I don't know if I would do that. There was something about like a spirit cat that was going to help her figure it out. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I'd go that far. But like, sure, let's explore Ellie Creed coming back to Maine and like dealing with all of this. I mean, I wouldn't mind Victor coming back and be like, hey. No, no, no. It wasn't Victor. It was a cat. I know. I know. I mean, I don't know if that's hokey or just as... It's very hokey. I mean, I would just like... I don't want to watch a movie about a girl and a dead cat. I, I would love it. I, I think if I would do it, I would just be like, well, Victor, Victor Pascal still root, like... Like rooted to earth, he can't move on because he failed to like save Lewis. So now, right, now and he, she remembers his name. I, I, that, that instead of a fucking cat, I think, I think that makes much more sense. Like, and plus, like, I would agree with yeah. you. And what's his name? Uh, oh yeah, Brad, Brad Greenquist. I, I loved him. He, I just give him more roles. That'd be great. I think it would be awesome if they if they had done done it that way. It's not what ended up happening. Pet Cemetery Two is. Completely unrelated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, ha Which, it has a young Edward Furlong, the kid from Terminator, or Terminator 2, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, same same town, right? But, like, just uh, mm -hmm. say all new set of characters and stuff. Yeah. It's sort of, like, clean slate, sort of bullshit. So, one thing I want to talk about, um, novel-wise, that differentiated from the movie, which has another element to other universes in Stephen King's writing is that there is a th there are, in the book that there are several nods to the shining apart from Victor Pascal calling Lu calling Lewis Doc which is a nickname from the shining that Danny has Apparently, the entire Creed family suffers from premonitions and nightmares. Oh. 
that is sort of a signal that the family might have The Shining. And that's sort of touched on in the novel. It's not really touched on in the movie so much. But you get it with Ellie having the dreams that she has. Because she talks about Victor, but as we know, Victor is sort of just a presence that's there. And doesn't necessarily, and you don't have to be asleep to do that. So I thought that that was a nice touch. I, I don't, it sort of comes off in the film, but not really. But I don't think it, I don't think it takes anything away from it at all. There's that as just like a nice little additive. Yay, trivia. The last thing that I want to touch on is going more in towards the 2019 remake and what we're going to sort what we hope for it, what we expect from it, whatever. So I, I think I said this before, a big critique from the film is that Gage is not nearly as vulgar as he was in the novel. And I think that... This is one of the benefits and one of the pros of them having the older daughter be the one that dies in the remake instead of it being Gage. I wrote pros. The vulgarity of the book can be represented. Cons. No dead Gage. I like the dead toddler thing. (laughs) I don't know why. But (laughs) there are your pros and cons of that. You don't get to see the dead zombified toddler unless... The older daughter kills him instead of mom, which could be an interesting thing. But I also think that the Wendigo mythos is actually going to be represented in in this remake, which makes it slightly more true to the book, but also leaves the 1989 film to stand on its own two feet. I mean, that's I mean, that's to be expected. I mean, yeah, you want you want like something for the fans of the original, but you also want something to appeal to new new audiences you know possibly people may have never read a stephen king book or read or seen the original pet cemetery and um updating or giving a facelift or giving some new tweaks and uh or something haven't seen before like the wendigo mythos like i think that's all valid and i i i i have a lot of trust in this the new production team so I'm all, I'm, all, yeah. I'm all for it. I mean, it was definitely a shock the first time you saw the trailer and you noticed that it was going to be the daughter and not Gage. I was like, whoa, what are you doing? But when I started looking th- things up for this episode and I started reading more about the book, it sort of occurred to me, oh, well, that's how you can get away with that. That might be how a studio might be more comfortable selling something like that is if you do it with an older child instead of the littler one. Like, yeah, because toddler baby death is still taboo it's still very taboo and i don't think they would have a problem with that now necessarily but i do think if you're going to make a child be obscene and be vulgar maybe maybe making sure that they're not three years old might help a studio be like sure we can do this a little (laughs) bit differently (laughs) so where i was very hesitant before after Getting ready for this episode, I'm a little bit more optimistic mm. for the remake. Do you think? And do you think it's based really on like excited. the the production company? Because this is being distributed by like Paramount Pictures. Like, I don't know for some reason. Like, I would think like if this was like a Bloomhouse picture pr- production, I think they would like totally 
go for broke and definitely like push like doing gauge little kid but and like up the ante on his vulgarity um i don't know what do you think about that um i think a lot of it i think some of it does have to do with a production company and a distribution company that decides to do all of this but also a director needs to weigh in on that a screenwriter needs to weigh in on that I feel like the parents of the child actor also need to weigh in on that. So <laughs> because this is going to follow them for the rest of their lives. <laughs> right. Maybe, I mean, maybe we're not going to have an it situation where the kid will just start cursing after oh, this. Mike, I don't know. Mike Wheeler. We'll find, <laughs> we'll find out. But I am no longer as turned off by not killing the youngest child as I, as I was. Because I always have that now. Even if they don't do it in the 2019 movie, you always have it in the 1989 movie. I really don't want this to come across like I, I like I have a thing for like dead children and like dead baby jokes or whatever. <laughs> like I, I, that's not what this is. It's is it? Just, is it? <laughs> first of all, I don't understand dead baby jokes and I don't like them. Yeah, I I think they're pointless. They're not humorous at all. They're they're they're, they're sort they're, of they're like just pure shock value. That's what that's all it is. It's it's it's, it's trying to like yeah. Disgust. It's like telling a racist joke. Yeah, it's like you're an asshole if that's coming out of your mouth. I'm sorry. Like I I don't understand that. So I no longer have the same agita towards them not killing a small child as I did. It's just. For people who really relate to Pet Cemetery and the message that it's trying to give you, uh, I, going through that movie again, it does something to you. When, we were, when I was watching the documentary, the guy who played Lewis said that he had a hard time connecting with that scene because he wasn't a dad. He didn't have any kids. But he has watched it since becoming a father. And he was tearing up in the documentary. He's like, this is the hardest thing for me to watch. I don't have any kids. But that's still pretty friggin' hard for me to watch. I can't imagine what a parent would feel watching all of that. So Pet Cemetery does what horror itself wants to do. Create a conversation. Talk about things that people don't normally talk about. It forces you to face that situation. And you don't have to accept it, but you should talk about it. So that's why Pet Cemetery, I think, is always going to be... A, like a like a, a leading film in, in horror it it's definitely at the forefront of not just being a cult classic but being like a time-honored horror movie like it's a staple in my eyes so if you haven't seen pet cemetery go watch it go watch it before the remake experience what that was like that's one thing I will say. Watch this before you watch the remake because I know it's going to be different. Uh, right, I want to get your hot take. So there's a lot of really good um, Stephen King adaptations out there. Uh, and we were, mm-hmm. We've been reviewing it all last month. Uh, would you say Pet Cemetery is at the top of your personal list? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, 100%. And, 100%. And I guess... Uh, from what from your research from the documentary or just from hearsay to me it seems like pet cemetery from an objective stephen king fans uh perspective it seems like it's extremely high up there uh would you say, would you say that's also accurate um 
because like, I just judging from the like the documentary alone, it's just like a lot of fanfare from this film and like the early reviews of the like the 2019 film, like Pet Cemetery uh, as a work on its own, and like and like uh, and like the original movie, um, is it, it's it sings in the hearts of like so many fans. So would you say? Like top three, uh, Stephen King of all 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 time Stephen King favorite adaptations, or yeah, yeah. easily, Mm -hmm. easily. Um, like I said, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it forces you to acknowledge and talk about things that people don't like to talk about. I know that watching Pet Cemetery makes me feel a certain way about people that I've lost, things that I've lost, whether it be pets or people. Um, does it make it easier? No, but it for some people it can create an outlet. It can create a conversation. I know I touched on this in the very beginning of the episode. I don't believe in lying to children. I don't believe in hiding things from them either. This movie stirs up those kinds of conversation and stirs up those kinds of ideas in you. I have a very young nephew. He has. Two fur siblings. At some point, something's going to happen to those dogs. Is he going to have a question? Am I going to be around when he does it? How am I going to handle that? I'm not his mother. But it's things like that. That, you know, watching a movie like this, it sort of forces you to think about it and acknowledge it. And and talk about it with someone you love or a friend or on a podcast or to yourself or whatever it is. And I think for that reason, it's why it is a tried and true with a lot of horror fans. It's a why, it's why it's so close to so many of their hearts. And I think it's why it holds up and is so high on, on people's lists. I think it really, I think it really does something for people once, you know, they get past that age hump and they get to a point where they can actually sit there and watch it. A lot of the child actors in the documentary were like, it was years before I could actually watch this movie all the way through. So existential terror is best terror yeah exactly exactly and i it's really what stephen king does best i mean the stand is about a a biological weaponized flu that wipes out half the population don't think i wasn't paranoid after reading that book but it's what he does and again it creates a conversation so as long as stephen king keeps writing you and i can keep doing things like this and i think his novels and his and his adaptations will keep having impacts on people and i think that that's what's what people overlook about horror sometimes when you say horror movies people cringe and i don't think they give it enough credit that it can actually be a teaching moment so there you go (laughs) that's how i fucking feel i like it it's great about you (laughs) um well let me ask answer that question with a question was this relatively early in his career? Like, the, the book, at least? I feel like this work is one of Stephen King's most mature works. And, like, I, I say that, like, because, I mean, he's been a lifelong prolific writer. And when I say mature, like, I think it just... It's, like, the, one of the... Has the, some of the most poignant subtext like like we 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 talked about before like it it deals with a lot of like real world uh relatable topics um topics that 
all people, especially parents, have to deal with. You know, how to raise a kid right and uh, how to keep a family together and how do you deal with uh, the ugly side of everyday life, like death and parts of life that aren't so beautiful or morbid, but still are part of the natural order. Dealing or how, how you deal with like instilling good morals, also at the same time, how to follow those good morals and what, regardless of religion or like ethics or you know, just whatever type of esoteric concept, like for example, like Vic, Victor's uh, nation of like there's a clear line between life and death, and you sh- that that barrier should not be disturbed, or that line should, should not be disturbed. Um, there's so many layers. There's a lot to chew on, and I think it's just really informed by like these constant questions that you know all of humanity and a lot of other great writers and great thinkers have um, talked about and gave their own spin about. And like for example, like, the documentary mentions like three formative works of Stephen King, especially this film, where uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And uh, they they all play in that thematic playground as well. And I, just, you know, and art inspires art. And like now, because of those works, we have this um, book and movie, which continues that conversation that Ryan and I like so much. Um, and inspires and now with the remake coming out you know we could have a renewed conversation or at least a return to that conversation and then uh what all these topics mean in 2019 and i'm really excited to see what that remake has to say about that yeah me too i'm really excited um just as one last note Like Chris said, there was a part in the documentary where they talked about the works that sort of inspired Stephen King and, like, really influenced his work to this day. I'm just going to list those off for you because I wrote them all down. Um, If you guys sort of want to see where he came from, and I've read all of these for classes and stuff in college, and uh, you should read them all, I think, at least, like, once in your life. Just, you know. Uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dracula. And Monkey's Paw, which is a oh, that's right. story. Yeah. Forgot about that one. But you could see where he pulls his work from and where he got his inspiration from. And I think that that is so amazing. Ah, oh, Pet Cemetery. So good. <laughs> so good. Can't wait. Thank you, Stephen King. Thank you. Um, so with that, yeah. So uh, we hope you enjoyed... Uh, Pet Cemetery, 19, uh, the nineteen eighty nine version. Uh, like Ryan said, please watch this. It's so good. Um, and this is one of those few times where I would highly, highly insist that you watch the original before the remake. Mm-hmm. And I don't usually do that, but I feel like for this you should. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, like we said before, the. The remake is upon us. is literally coming out this weekend, um, and hopefully we'll be able to record a bonus episode uh, on our thoughts on uh, the remake. Um, schedule wise, we're not quite sure when that will 
be released because we um i mean our busy schedules but um we're gonna make an effort because i you know we had a really great time talking about the it remake and um whether way back when uh when we when we did that uh, on super nerd pals and i think it's only right to follow up with another spoiler cast um uh, and you know it's it's a, it's a chair on the top because we just we just had so much fun doing this Stevie King uh, monthly marathon, and I think we should end it off with a, with another big bang uh, with the remake. I agree. I'm excited. Uh, I really hope that we can bring that to you guys because we love doing this. So, fingers crossed for <laughs> for a remake episode, and we will have another episode for you coming out. Just wanted to say thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. So please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Literally everything and anything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud every single Friday except for when work gets in the way. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod on Facebook. And guys, we have a website, leftfordread.com. So check us out. And don't forget... Stay dreadful! Stay dreadful! <laughs>